Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with an extra special episode featuring Rhea Turtle-Todd because she is not only the Vice Chancellor of External Affairs at UCLA, she is also one of the top five most mentioned mentors among all of the guests that we've had on the Raise podcast. And so we've got to learn more about how and why that came to be the case. Rhea, welcome. Thank you, Brent. It's lovely to be here. Well, before we dive into all of that, I want to learn more about your own higher education journey. Take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Rhea? What was she into and what led you to Trinity College? Junior year of high school. Wow, that's way back. I didn't ask when it was. I just said, <laughs> I got to process that. <laughs> Junior year of high school. What was I doing? I was applying to colleges. I was getting Where'd ready. Where'd you live? Uh, Philadelphia. You Grew okay. up in Philadelphia. Went to a, a pretty small um, private high school, Germantown Academy. Um, getting ready to go off that summer to an AP summer program at Cornell University. First time I'd actually ever been away, never did the overnight camp or anything like that. And loved the experience and knew that uh, I was probably destined for a small liberal arts college because of that experience. 900 kids, all rising high school seniors, there were 900 kids from pre-K to 12th grade in the school that I attended from the eighth grade on. So um, I said, okay, we're going to go small and got to Trinity College on a rainy August morning with no one around. And of all the schools that we had visited, that was that was the one that felt like home, that I could imagine myself walking around. And when you go back to that decision-making process, it's really kind of crazy to let us make big decisions like that when we're 17 years old. But, you know, what did, What was it? I mean, sometimes it's, you know, campus was beautiful or I had a really good tour guide. I mean, were there... Yeah, it, you know, it's funny because I think about this a fair amount. There, there was no one around. It was gray and muddy. I had been to other places. Um, I could tell it was beautiful. I mean, there's a gorgeous chapel when you walk in through an archway at the, you know, the entry to the campus. A, a design of the campus that I learned later was modeled after Trinity College at Cambridge. And years later, I went to visit there and discovered it was not just modeled after, it was brick by brick, the exact same entry um, as the campus at Cambridge, which was very peculiar. But I think... I just could see myself walking around this campus with books and um, it felt like home in a weird way. But in large part, I have to say the person who interviewed me had been a graduate of my high school. And so we connected on a level that I wouldn't have had in any other of the interviews. But she said, if you're serious about Trinity, come back when it's in session, come back and see what it's like when you experience it in its full expression of a college campus, not on a dreary August morning. And, and I did that. And she said, and if you like it, you should apply early decision because you should just signal that. And so I did. And I came back and came with a friend and we spent the weekend with another, uh, with the sister of a high school friend. 
and it was it was beautiful then it was it, the full bloom of uh, bloom of of uh, fall you know all the colors everything and truth be told there was a moment in that visit when we stopped along the long walk and the the host of our weekend stopped to talk to a boy <laughs> and that boy looked like the dreamiest person i'd ever seen at that moment in time and i thought okay so that moment probably sealed the deal someone I never spoke to my entire four years of college or three when we overlapped. Um, but years later, I learned that this same guy was working as an admissions interviewer, alumni interviewer. And I thought he's probably been sending young women to Trinity College for decades. <laughs> but um, it was actually a very, very, uh, there was something about being in the city, a small city, I thought New York or Boston would be too distracting, um, but being in a capital city with a strong internship program, and I spent the second half of my my college career basically working in the city. Um, What'd you study? What were you thinking? You so I was a political I was a political science major, and the college had this fantastic program. I was just telling somebody about it yesterday. In fact, a great program in uh, in the legislature. You didn't have to be a political science major, but um, many people were. And it was 35 hour work week with a representative in the legislature. And then Friday afternoons was a seminar. And that was my entire spring semester. I went to work in the legislature and I had an afternoon seminar on Fridays and it was fantastic. Um, and two, uh, about a third of the way through it, I was thinking, wow, this is really great. Uh, maybe I'd run for office someday. Wow. And then about three quarters of the way through, I realized, oh, no, no, no. I do not want to give my career over to tens of thousands of ignorant people to make the decision whether I get to or not to do this work. And so I, I left that internship with a great appreciation for what it takes to make policy, to make law, um, to do all of the things that are really important to help transform society, but in that venue, not for me. So, yeah. Those poignant memories. It sounds like a study abroad program at the state house. Exactly, exactly. And study abroad wasn't an opportunity for me. Um, it's not something that I could do at that time. And so it was a way to get off campus. It's exactly what it was. And so during your time as a student, did alumni relations hit your radar advancements probably not that word but did you know it was right. a so a little bit a little bit actually because my sophomore year i don't know how or why but i wound up in one of those phone calling evenings dialing alumni for dollars um but that was sophomore year then i did that internship and then my senior year i did another internship where i was a um an internet United Technologies Comp uh, Corporation, which at the time, I don't know what it is now, but I, it was a, you know, a Fortune 10 company and based in Hartford, Connecticut. And I worked in the corporate contributions department, not in the awarding of gifts from the corporation or grants from the corporation, but I was on the, I guess you would call it almost like the um, community affairs side or the public relations area where every place that they had made a gift, 
this was the group of people that actually told the story about the impact of the gift through their various community outreach programs. So I was involved in a lot of drafting of press releases and um, just telling the story, the narrative of how corporate giving impacts communities. And the two biggest programs that they funded that I remember at this point in my life um, was a nationwide, trust me, this is true, a nationwide double Dutch tournament, jump rope tournament that culminated with championships in Walt, at Walt Disney World in Orlando. I didn't go to those, but I got to write about them and watched truly unbelievable talent. You know, a lot of kids, you know, a lot of inner city kids, double Dutch is a big to do. And it really lifted up these communities and these families in a way that you couldn't have possibly imagined who thinks about a jump rope tournament at that scale. But it was, it was amazing. And the other one were, um, the other program that they funded were spelling bees um, all across the country. And, you know, this is a, a big corporation that built helicopters and, I mean, they had carrier elevator and Sikorsky aircraft and Pratt and Whitney engines. And they were sponsoring these kinds of things in the communities where they, where their, their operations were based and then built up all of this activity around the country. So I was seeing things. Yeah. I never heard the word advancement. Um, but I definitely knew what development was. I knew what the development office was. And I knew that somebody smart at the college who worked in development called in interns working at corporations around the city to talk about what we were learning and how that might influence how the college would engage in appealing to those corporations. Amazing. I love it. And I just have to share on December 2nd of last year, 2023, mm -hmm. Connecticut Insider did a story about the new resurgence of double Dutch in Hartford. Get out. Specifically cited that this used to be a huge thing back in the day. I won't say Are you when. serious? And that United Technology was one of our biggest supporters and sponsors. No, that's I, not true. Where to you? And I'm wait, gonna wait, I got to find that article. That's amazing. Right now, this is real-time research, breaking news to all of our <laughs> listeners who are getting more than we bargained for. I I swear that that was just published less than, you know, a, a couple weeks ago. So. That's hilarious. That's amazing. I yeah. love it. Your work lives on. And uh, how about that? Okay. I'm going to tell you how long ago that was. I'm, I'm, I don't care. I'll put it up. That was 1982 when I was a senior in college. So that is an amazing, amazing thing. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. I can't uh, wait to read it. So, so tell me about political science. That internship teaches you what you don't want to do, at least uh, right away. Uh, what do you go on to do? What is your first step? And here's the thing, listeners. Usually at this point in the episode, I'd be scanning the LinkedIn profile and we do this kind of past, present, future thing. However, as we'll go on to learn right now, Rhea has no social media presence. And she said uh, in our prep call uh, that, you know, when, when friending became a verb instead of a noun, 
warning bells went off for her. So I, I am flying <laughs> as blind as I've flown on one of these interviews. So what what did you do? So what did I do after college? So my first job was at Trinity College. And it was really a very serendipitous situation. Like a lot of people, certainly many of my contemporaries in this business, we would talk often about falling into this field. Um, Many of us actually now have kids who are working in this field, which is really kind of amazing. We can talk about that later. But um, I was... I came out of college knowing, okay, I don't want to work in the political realm. And I didn't have an exact focus, um, but I felt it was maybe something along the lines of PR in some way. Didn't know what industry, but some kind of storytelling, narrative, um, sharing, and but no real focus, no, no specific focus, just kind of a direction. And graduated college, came home to Philadelphia sometime around, you know, looking at a few jobs here and there, but in no particular rush until my mother at the time said, do you think you might want to get a job? And uh, for whatever reason, this is now, of course, going back to the Stone Age, I needed a transcript and I needed it quickly for something. And somehow quickly was probably an attempt to go see and visit friends. But the, the quickest in my mind was to actually go back to Connecticut And I have to get this from the registrar to get the transcript physically. Like there wasn't a fax machine or anything like this. So we also counted our gifts when I was first working on an abacus, I always say. So this is going way back. But um, I'm on the campus wandering around and I run into the dean of students who says to me, oh, you know, have you have you found a job yet? And I said, now when my mother's after me, what's the big deal? I just graduated two months ago, right? That That's the memory I have of my postgraduate life is what was the rush? And in the end, he said to me, you know, there's a new posting that I learned is going to go up. The development office is looking for someone specifically from your graduating class. They're going to do like a postgraduate paid internship type of thing. He didn't call it an internship, but someone for your graduating class, you should go up there and, and talk to them out. Let's just go check it out. So I wander in and meet the man who had called me in originally to talk about United Technologies and its corporate contributions um, agenda. And he was also, he oversaw the annual fund. So when I was that student caller, I don't know necessarily that he was actually on site that particular night, but it was within his domain. And so these little pieces start to connect and he tells me about the job and it sounds kind of interesting. And they're literally going to hire somebody who's going to go around the country and host these same kinds of calling nights, phonathons that they were called back then and maybe still are elsewhere. But we would call we would call from the the office of some alumnus in this, that or the other or alumna, this, that or the other city. And this person would organize this. If I hadn't had that conversation with him and at that moment, when the announcement had come to my home in the mailbox, um, I don't know that I would have paid attention in the same way. So 
you know, these pieces that come together, the conversations with people who know me, who send me to this location to talk to this person who I realize I've met before, he's met me. You know, it's a small college. It's not that hard to sort of know a name. Um, my name has never been one that's easily forgotten. Uh, you know, that I took Turtle Tab. I didn't hyphenate it, but Rhea Pincus could live on Rhea alone too. And so um, so I wound up going back. I, I applied for the job. I got the job. Wow. And they sent me around the country traveling. All I was 22 years old, you know, yeah. running here, there, and everywhere and having the time of my life. Here's the thing I love about that, but also is so confusing to me, is I don't think that 2024 equivalent position will be posted this year at Trinity College. No. And I think that we'll go to a bunch of case conferences where people talk about the talent pipeline and how hard it is to hire people. And I'll raise my hand and say, then why don't you just have a post-grad internship program like Rhea did in 1982 and hire five people, like solve the talent problem, get young, hungry, hardworking people that are passionate about the experience. It's like the tour guide that has a fifth year basically, right. and then do some version of, you know, the 2024 type of, uh, right, whatever the job is, right. We're doing like, why is it so hard? You know, we have a, we have a summer internship program that we've actually now created also in the wintertime too. It was patterned after something that the University of Michigan started years ago. Um, and uh, when Jerry May was the vice president there, and I'm sure many of your listeners know Jerry, and uh, it was a great program that a number of us have adopted since. And it's both a, it, it's not unlike the internship program that I did as a college junior. You work, there's a series of projects you work on. You We have staff across the campus who identify projects that they would take an intern in to work on. Um, they're paid internships and they um, there's an academic component. And it's a fantastic program. And we hire from that program a number of our, of our interns. Some are still with us today. Some have gone off to do this work elsewhere. And some were like me as a junior saying, you know what? Mm not necessarily for me. Um, and we have them in development roles, in alumni affairs roles, in government relations roles, in finance roles. So it spans all of external affairs in, in our world. In a lot of other campuses, it's development and alumni relations, but we have a bigger um, footprint on the campus. So we're able to, to provide experience for a lot of people. You know, we do, I think we've done it now. I think we're going on our 12th year, so. Oh. Love it. Copy yeah. and that, everyone. I love it. We should have more of that. Obviously, Case is doing great work in doing their graduate trainee program. Yep. Their internship programs are great. Yeah. On ramps and, and I think talent development. We just hosted Michael Eicher, who was talking about the Advancement Leadership Lab. So there are good things happening, but there still is, um, I think, too much of a narrative around, you know, a lack of a talent pipeline. And, and, you know, frankly, nobody has a better opportunity when, you know, you're surrounded by students. And so tell right. me about 1982, 1983, traveling around the country, doing the calling nights, favorite night, favorite, oh, God. anything that stands out. No worries. If okay. Not. Can I tell you favorite night? Seriously, was every night 
because one of the things one of the things we did as a thank you to all of our callers, somebody they had done this before, so I this wasn't my innovation, um, but it was my uh, it was my obsession. They gave everybody they found some company that would manufacture like a chocolate telephone, like literally, you know, this is way back, right? So no cell phone, right? Like the the cradle and the thing. And they were hollow on the inside, thank goodness, because I'd go back to the hotel every night because there'd always be an extra one. And I would stay up, do all my contact reports, this, that, and the other thing while chewing on this chocolate telephone. Um, so every night was my favorite night, Brent. Um, but I would say, honestly, you know, when people would come together to hang together, support the college, you know, there'd be a little competitive nature to it, this and that. But you know, they could be as small as six people. They could be as big as 15 or 20. And um, the people who hosted them hosted them year in and year out. And it was, you know, at the time, I wasn't thinking about it quite the same way. But that type of cultivation yeah. and that type of donor stewardship and the opportunity to engage um, with fellow alumni in their local community cemented particularly for those hosts who went on to become, you know, very, very uh, dedicated volunteers to the campus. Some became trustees. I became a trustee years later, but, um, and got to reconnect with some of those people, which was kind of amazing. So, yeah, so that was just a one-year gig, but then they hired me to stay on. And as these things often do, right. And so my first full-time well, it was always full time, but my first job that was not going to necessarily end the next year. So I did that job. I started, I think it was like in October. So it was like a nine month thing. And then they turned it over to a member of the class of 83 because they could keep the salary at the same level, which, you know, wouldn't even pay for rent, I think, in Los Angeles today well, on the yearly salary. Um, but it was it was an opportunity then to really become a full member of the staff and wound up doing prospect research as well as continuing to help with some of this external work, but predominantly internal prospect research. So I went from the external focus to the internal focus. And then after the, what was it? Well, it was it was the research. I take that back. It was it was internal research and external research because we were getting ready to we were planning for a campaign. And so I was also asked to build on the external things I had done the year before to do the prospect screening and rating programs. Um, again, I don't I don't know who does those that way anymore. But. Now I was starting to ask about higher levels of gift capacity than just the annual fund. And having that internal external research experience was really, really valuable um, as terrific building blocks for, for a long-term career. Not that, again, that I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna do this for 41 years and counting. So, um, so I did that for a year. And then I think by the time the third year came around, I had layered in, they'd layered in the parents program. So now I was back doing volunteers and asking 
in a different with a different constituency, but one that was was really enjoyable. And so I got a fairly, you know, well-rounded look at advancement, at least in a small college environment. I mean, to cover volunteer engagement, annual giving, prospect research, a window into corporate foundation work, and parent fundraising in, you know, a few yeah. years. And that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you... I mean, when you think about like actually sitting down face to face with somebody and and fundraising on a one on one relationship level, was it in the parent role or when did when did that happen? Do you remember making solicitations? Yeah. So. I have to say, I think that there probably was a little bit of it, even in that internship year, um, because with the people that I was working with to host specific events and they were they were clearly known donors they wouldn't be hosting these things otherwise right so there was a little bit there um i guess it was in a focused way i guess it was the parent program but even those screening and rating sessions right where i was going back into similar to the same cities and then some some bigger ones um i probably was engaged again with the hosts in that way um, but I was definitely getting a taste of it at Trinity. Um, but after three years, I knew that I wanted to live someplace else. Right? Okay, yeah. Pardon? Where'd you want to live? I want to live in California. And, okay. um, you know, there was, there was the college boyfriend who was from California, who was not in the picture anymore, but had one time said, you know, you're a misplaced Californian. And that kind of stuck with the relationship ended, but the the um, that stuck in my head. And so I went hat in hand to the vice president with whom I had gotten very close. She was a wonderful mentor of mine, a woman by the name of Connie Ware, um, who passed away about three years later. Um, she, I went to her and I said, you know, I want you to know that I feel the need to spread my ways. I, I'm 25 years old living in the insurance capital of the world. I, that was, I, it wasn't home. New England wasn't home. Um, and I just had this sense that I wanted to be somewhere else. And I wanted to get, I wanted to get to the West coast. And she was fantastic. And she said to me, that's fan That's great. I'm glad you've told me that. Let's see how we can help you. And shortly thereafter, she we had our we had our uh, consultant from Martin Lundian, Burr Gibson. May he rest in peace too. And he was on campus, and she asked me to come into her office. And she said, "Burr, Rhea says she wants to move to the West Coast. How can we help her? Who amongst your clients might be able to offer an opportunity for her to explore a position?" And I tell that story over and over and over again throughout my career to everyone who has ever worked in any organization where I have been. Be open, be honest, be transparent about your aspirations because you never know where the help will come from. And it's a whole lot easier than sneaking around behind somebody's back. And you only have to tell one story that way. And it has never resulted in anything other than an 
unbounded willingness to be helpful. And so many people are afraid that if they come forward to say, I need to stretch my wings or I need to follow, you know, a spouse for this, that or the other. Generally, that's easier to say. But, you know, people or I want to pursue a relationship. Right. I, but you don't want to talk about it that way. Um, being honest is just the simplest thing to do. And help comes in so many different ways. And in other experiences, you know, when someone brings you that piece of information, I'm ready to stretch, I'm ready to go, doesn't necessarily mean they have to leave. And for all of us who manage large teams, you want to be tuned in to where people are, but you can't necessarily know exactly what's going on in people's minds at any given time. But once you're aware, you know, there are things you can move, create, provide opportunity within, doesn't mean you have to go. But I really encourage people to raise their hand to say, I feel ready. And then you're having a dialogue about what it's going to take to get to this next place. And maybe you're not ready for that thing you think you are at that very moment, but this is what you need to do to get there. And let me help. And sometimes it's, you know, what? I don't have that for you here in this institution at this moment, and I don't know that I can foresee it in the next year or so, but let me help. Let me make some calls. I can't tell you how many times I've done that for members of our team who just have a reason to need to stretch or they have a need to go and be with aging parents or some such thing. There, there's a reason they have to uproot. And I certainly have Plenty of, we all do have plenty of contacts all around the country and now around the world. And if we can be helpful, that's, you know, that's the greatest gift we can give the profession, right? It's not to cling to somebody. Now, there's some people you want to cling to because they're really good and you'll move heaven and earth to do it, right? But, but the gift of giving, right? <laughs> we talk about this in our profession all the time, right? The gift, the reward of the gift is greater than the gift itself. The gift of being able to give somebody a chance to grow themselves professionally and to put the, the talent and skill set that they've developed within your organization and organizations past into someplace else, that's, you know, that's the greatest thing. But to do it in a in a skulky kind of way, that no. never feels good. It's, never feels good. It's amazing you say that because I feel like I have... I have failed at instilling that kind of culture because there are countless specific people I'm thinking of where I have said, look, if you ever feel like you need to make the next move, let me know because I want to help you because you have been so good to me and so good to our organization. I don't think anybody's ever once actually, you know, it? me up on that. And maybe sometimes I think it's they, they, they want to show they can do it on their own or they mm -hmm. want to themselves that they can, do it on their own, but um, it's it's striking to hear you say that because even even some folks that have been really close relationships. Uh, the other thing that stands out is the connection with Burr and and GGNA, and and it's been really fun. Um, you know, I'm now rounding the corner on 14 years since mm -hmm. starting EverTrue, and have been really fortunate to get to know a lot of the leaders around the country. Mm -hmm. I love getting the text message. You know, hey Brent. Uh, an AVP for our healthcare system role just opened up. Who do you know who might be great? It's, it's, I'm not, 
in the search business, but it's really fun when you start to get to play matchmaker a little bit. Yeah. Oh, actually, like I, I have just the person that actually grew up there and they've been away for a long time and I have no idea if they're looking, but right. you don't already know each other. You just should know each other anyway. Yeah. Lead to the next thing. And, the next yeah. thing and it's honestly a, um, I mean, it is a gift to be able to do it. It's also, it is our stock and trade to be the matchmakers. Yeah. Right? That is what we do. We're matching people with capacity and interests. Yeah. We might need to unlock them, right? But people with capacity and passion and interest with organizations and people who have important work to do. And to me, putting those together, it's not about asking for money. It's actually being a matchmaker. It's one of the most noble things we can do is to put those two people with similar interests and some with capacity and others with need when you when that happens that's that's magic and it's it's i think the most rewarding thing we could be doing so where did you land in california you see berkeley cal berkeley yeah. whatever yeah. you want to call it oh, i <laughs> yeah for me it's cal i don't know i guess in the acc we'll see what they become um, I think they'll still be Cal in the ACC. I know they're going through some conversations about aligning their names, but I, I'm pretty sure my first exposure to Cal, although I believe it was referred to as Berkeley in this specific instance, was growing up in Iowa. The Field of Dreams was a really popular movie, and the uh, the whole plot is that Kevin Costner and his spouse, who met at Berkeley, moved back to be farmers in Iowa. So they. Right. Would one of my favorite movies. Yeah. yeah. And so that was when I learned about it. You uh you might have been there at that time. I don't know. And so what was the move? Palm trees. There's a few. Oh of my God. I was so different, right? So, so different. Um I said, you know, there were more, I think there were more faculty than there were students at Trinity College. And that for me, that that transition from a liberal arts college in New England to this huge public research university in California was like my graduate education. I still have, you know, I've got the BA in political science. That's it. I didn't earn any other degrees, um, but I've worked in places and certainly at UCLA long enough, I say I've got the equivalent of seven degrees um, in the time that I've been here. But uh, I just loved it. I mean, it was, it was so vastly different. It was, everything was just wide open. And um, the work that was being done, the research, the alumni, it was it was fascinating. And, you know, and you also have the mythologies that are busted when you go to a place that you've heard about for so many years. And I think I remember saying somebody to somebody it was like the Mecca of higher education, right? That image of the Campanile that you would see in photographs all the time. And, and, uh, I remember talking with people who had graduated in the late 60s, early 70s, and talking to them about the free speech movement. And, you know, now there's a free speech cafe. Somebody, you know, people gave a gift to actually name it the free speech cafe. But what I learned um, was really interesting, which is that the majority of people, as big as those protests were, we talk about protests on our campus now, right? The protests there might have gotten as big as 5,000, nothing like what we're seeing today. It was Today is way smaller than what we're seeing, what was going on then. Um, but that wasn't the majority of the students, 
right? I would I would find myself in living rooms and offices talking to people who were just going to class. They're going to class and they'd walk past all of this stuff. And, you know, it was on the news every night and you would hear it and see it. And I remember even as a kid seeing that. But it gave me an appreciation that on a campus that size, um, there are a multitude of experiences one can have. And something that's shaking the world and, and on the nightly news may not even be anything other than background noise for two thirds to three quarters of the people going to class, playing football, working in the lab, doing their internship. And um, I've always remembered that because especially now when our campuses are going through a lot of strife um, and I look at the pictures and I always make sure to study the photographs to see what's going on on the periphery. And there's people just going to class. I can pick it out on the campuses. I know not in every single one, but um, you know, especially public universities, right? We are open campuses. All kinds of things take place every day. And that's what I loved. I mean, I loved going from a campus of 2,000 students to a campus of, at the time, probably 38,000 students, something like that. So, But I bet when that was happening and the 5,000 people were protesting, that was on the front page of the newspaper. Oh, for sure. There of was course. a front page of the newspaper of the 70% of people that were just going to class. Yeah. That's no, I mean, that's the thing. That's what I discovered. I mean, I... Here we are now, though, in, in another version of that, and it is amplified by social media, which is maybe part of the reason that you know that you've avoided it. And um, but 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 it but it means that that story. I mean, you said before that storytelling is something that resonated with you early on, even before you knew what advancement was, mm -hmm. and I feel like. You know, as we think about late 23 and where we are, it's January 4th of 24 when we're recording this. Who knows by the time this is published, even a few weeks from now, what's happened. Um, it, it does feel like we are losing the storytelling battle, if you will, relative to my point being, I hear constantly the amazing impact stories of what access to higher education, financial aid, facilities, mentorship, academic uh, expression and freedom has done for people, including me, including you. Constantly, those are the one-on-one -on -one stories you hear. Those are not on the headlines. Those right. are not the ones getting retweeted. Those are the ones that the algorithms would say, that's not interesting. We want drama. We want vitriol, Conflict. whatever. Yeah. And it, it, it makes me feel like this sort of you know, anti-higher ed narrative is winning, even though there are so few compelling counter stories, you know, by avoiding higher education, here is what I was able to achieve. Those are the exceptions, not the rules. There's no data that backs up that story. Right. That story is kind of winning right now. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. We had an experience yesterday that addressed this very thing. Um, yesterday, the university announced, well, actually the governor announced, this was a governor's press conference, but it was announced, it sort of leaked a little bit earlier, but the university, UCLA 
acquired the Westside Pavilion Mall, which for anybody listening who knows West LA, um, huge three-story mall. It's like 700,000 square feet of space that we just acquired. Um, it's an incredible story of a combination of public-private partnerships, um, state philanthropy, corporations, um, and we're converting it into a research park. And it will house initially um, our quantum science and engineering center, which has been in existence. It came together, I think, in 2018. And I will never do the science justice, but if anybody saw, there was a 60 Minutes episode just about a month ago, um, three to four weeks ago, on quantum science. And it's going to transform everything in the way we, everything we do, basically. That if you if you listen to all of this, because it completely upends what we understand as classical computing and the the just the raw power of what we'll be able to do um, is just going to be magnified exponentially. And then we will also house an uh, California Institute for Immunology and Immunotherapy. And at some point, those things actually do come together um, to be able to unlock what the life sciences are doing and the medical sciences are doing with the power of that kind of quantum computing. But, but these are the two things that we house there. And the conversation and the, the questions from the media were really interesting. And at some point, it veered off the specifics of what we were actually there announcing and somebody spoke to what was going on at Harvard and the, um, uh, you know, the resignation of Claudine Gay and and the governor responded briefly at first and then invited President Drake, Michael Drake, president of the UC system to respond. And, you know, he, he touched on exactly what you were talking about, what the role of higher education is what a what a research park like that would represent not only for our university, our community, but for for businesses, for the economy, for the nation and the world in terms of its discoveries. And um, just the very idea that an institute of higher learning is designed by its very nature to unlock truth, you know, to understand, to discover what makes things, as they are in our world, in our universe, um, to reveal the beauty in all of what we hold as the knowledge that we want to transmit. And in doing so, we create smart, sorry, smart, capable people who should be confident in their abilities to discern fact from fiction, to be able to ask critical questions, to analyze information and look for the holes and the gaps in what's not being said. And I don't know if all of this information that is being forced into people's hands and their brains for a split second are really being challenged in the ways that they should be. But God help us if we don't have educated citizens who can think critically and ask hard questions who aren't discerning um, for us. 
and for ourselves. I mean, I just hearing them talk about the role of education in that way, that is what we exist for, exist to do. And and I I think you're right. It doesn't necessarily sound sexy. I mean, when you talk about it in 700,000 square feet, that can sound, that gets people's attention. Um, but, but we need to do much more of that. And in our one-on-one conversations with donors who, who are by their very nature, generally old enough beyond the college age enough to be able to give back at, at certain levels, um, for them to be able to reflect on what is it that we need as a society. Um, this is an investment in higher education is one of the most important things you can do to be able to give people a chance to not only lift themselves up, but their families, their communities. Um, we're, we're, we're really fortunate to be able to educate so many first-generation college-going students. And we're not, Obviously, we're not the only ones. This is happening year in and year out, but, you know. When you think about the disconnect between what gets clicks and reality. Yeah. And let me just ask you about your peer group in the context of what's going on in the Middle East. And you referenced Claudine Gay's, uh, you yep. know, resume after a lot of pressure. Um, what's getting clicks right now is donors are... Uh, you know, pulling the strings, voting with the wallet, threatening, you know, shadow campaigns are really out in the open at this point, depending on the institution. That's what's getting all the clicks. And and I get it. But at the same time, you know, maybe what's not getting the clicks is there's still a ton of donors that realize that first gen access is a huge issue. And no matter what the headline is, what the political is swinging, there's going to be unmet need that can be somewhat addressed via philanthropy. I mean, like when you think about your case 50 or whomever other peer groups, leaders that have been uh, around the block that have seen pendulum swinging back and back and forth. Does this feel different? Like, like, is there an elevated level of this time? It's really, it's really bad. (laughs) Or, uh, uh, if you're watching the video version, my Zoom backdrop just died. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. Is it really that bad? Happy New Year. That's right. Does it feel different this time or is it is it just another cycle? Uh, you know, the threats to stop giving come all the time. There's always a reason to not want to give, right? And generally those threats and sometimes people follow through on those things are not at the highest level of giving, right? It's more often than not, uh, and I know from talking with lots of colleagues, it's more often than not the lower level donor who's not gonna give anymore and, You know, I don't mean to be crass about it, but, you know, we're not going to miss it either. You know, the $100 gift is not going to come. I, you know, I don't want to put too much out there. I'm not trying to manifest something worse. But um, but I guess what feels different is that this is very vocal and very high level donors and, you know, an organized campaign. I mean, the, the, the news 
that we're hearing about, it's, you know, minute by minute, right? Um, in our world, I would say we're having hard conversations and we're having deep conversations with donors about the state of campus life. I've invested lots and lots of time in these conversations. And again, I don't want to fulfill something here, but I, I, we've not seen quite that response or that action at this point. It may happen. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, around the world where, where people are going to just dig in their heels or I think mostly though, um, like every other era when something comes up like this, it creates an opportunity for real conversation. And I'm, I know that when our chancellor receives thousands of emails about this, that, or the other thing, it could be just their annoyance with the football coach, right? I mean, it's when that kind of volume comes because it's easy to stimulate the volume. Um, they're organized campaigns. They're often not even your own alumni who are part of the message bearing. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have a way to respond, right? There needs to be an institutional response. But my goal always is to pick up the phone and completely shock somebody that somebody will, wants to have a conversation. I can't do it for every single one of them, but I want our team. I want our colleagues to be able to do that, to supplement what comes out in writing, but to really dig deeper because the minute you have the conversation, it takes all of the vitriol out and then you start to understand what's really in someone's heart what are they afraid of? What are we doing on our campus that actually can help quell that fear that you're not that no one's talking about? It still may be that the issue is there and it's real and it's and it's frightening or it's offensive or whatever it might be. But people need to be seen and heard. And if we can do that, um, then we've actually built a fan and turn somebody who was ready to walk away into someone who's ready to step forward and listen and to keep engaging. And again, it's that narrative. It's not It's not a false narrative. It's not a manufactured narrative. It's an authentic narrative. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. And I, I think about, well, I, I recently reread a book called The Obstacles the Way, which is well known. And it's just sort of that that same point of just what's the least likely thing that somebody probably would do upon getting the vitriolic email yeah. phone and call the person. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the thing that probably has the best chance of potentially finding common ground and de-escalating. Yeah. I think about that all the time. Cause I unfortunately am on social media and you see this back and forth and sometimes oh, it's like, it's what if you could just hit like the talk button and they had to be like two people talking to each other instead of the keyboard warriors. Well, I mean, I even remember a time in the office, right? Two people in cubicles having a conversation in email and they're copying me. And finally, I literally walked over and took one person. I said, come with me. And I walked them around the divider and said, could you please just talk to each other and leave me out of it? There's no need for this. This is just, you know, so that if it could be manifest that way with two people on either side of a of a divider, yeah, it yeah. needs we need to blow that up. 
Well, why don't you give those two people a shout out, Rhea? Just kidding. Just I, kidding. <laughs> I honestly can't. I can remember where the cubicle was. Mm-hmm. I visually can picture myself walking to that space, but I don't remember who was in those two All right. few days. Time is flying. I should have scheduled two hours. There's so okay. much to discuss, but let me start to bring it home with just reflecting on your time uh, at UCLA. You've been there since 1994. Just one or two favorite memories where you've really felt like this is making a difference, or maybe it was a a great experience with a donor, or maybe a complete failure of a solicitation. Just what are the points that stand out like that uh, tour guide, uh, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about this. There's so many. I mean, in 29 years, there's a lot of these kinds of moments of clarity like wow this is this is what we're here for um probably one that i kind of feel on a regular basis we have uh, a donor that i think anybody who's visited our campus now knows of this location but um a, a lovely couple meyer and Rini luskin there he's 98 now still drives his red tesla and um he and his wife made a transformative gift now it's almost it's over a decade ago, it was, I remember 2011, the end of the year, he has a penchant for wanting to do his gifts right at the end of the year. And um, this was a gift that was sort of split to endow our School of Public Policy and to help us build a conference center in what became the center of our campus. There was a site originally identified, people weren't happy with it, center of the campus. And then a fund to help support conferences at that campus and disciplines that didn't have the same, you know, humanities and social sciences. Um, And it transformed the campus, right? I probably eat in this restaurant four days a week and I see people coming together, um, whether they're conferees or they're just members of the campus who are meeting, we meet donors there all the time. He's dining there at 98, probably two to three times a week. Um, He's like a celebrity on campus at this point. But when we dedicated the school, which obviously was easier to do, faster to do than building a a structure. um, I remember him saying that the reason he gave us uh, a gift to endow our School of Public Affairs was because, or public policy, I should say, was because, well, he had given to lots of parts of campus, including medicine, and that many people do that. He made the statement, what good is a healthy body if it doesn't live in a healthy society? And I've never forgotten that. That was, I probably heard that in 2012. And and to me, that gets back to what we were talking about before. What is the role of the university? Right? Who are we educating? What are we researching? What are we trying to discover? We're trying to elucidate the the higher truths of our world and to build a citizenry that can live humanely and peacefully. And we see, you know, the 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 failings of that all around the world on any given day. Pick your part of the, you know, pick your region of the world. But to me, that kind of philanthropy, that really enlightened philanthropy of someone who came to this country, who came to this university needing a scholarship for $30 to pay his tuition, 
to turn around and to be able to give a hundred million dollar gift and then some and over and over and over again. You know, there are so many examples of that kind of philanthropist and um, we all have them everywhere in all of our communities that are helping our regions of the country and our citizenry in our local communities be better. Amazing. Those, those aren't the stories that go viral, unfortunately, but those are the ones we've got to elevate and yep. it is a beautiful uh, note to end on. I got, I just, I got, I looked him up. I got to read about this real quick. The Luskins yeah. are factors and lifelong friends of UCLA. Meyer Luskin, chairman and chief executive officer at Scope Industries, recycles bakery waste to make animal feed ingredient. He attended UCLA on a scholarship, completing his bachelor's degree in economics in 1949 after a break for military service during World War II. And Renee Luskin earned a bachelor's degree in sociology in 1953. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love it. All right. Well, uh, we do need to wrap. Um, tell me about your team. Are you hiring? I know if people want to stay in touch with you, they can't do it on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. So you can the- find me at Turtle Tab anywhere. That's an easy, that's an easy email to find. Um, yeah, of course we're hiring. We're always hiring, right? I mean, I think all of us are. We're we're in the uh the planning phases for our next campaign, our our centennial campaign ended in December of 2019, you know, magically, right before the world turned outside in. And, uh, you know, we're we're in the a transition phase now. Our chancellor will be stepping down, presumably the end of July. We're in a chancellor search. Um, but the next campaign is is something we're we're planning for right now. So we will be we have vacancies now. We will be growing. We will be welcoming somebody new after a 17-year tenure, nearly, what, three times the national average. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting, a really interesting time for this university that I think, given what we did yesterday, um, and we've acquired campuses, we acquired a campus in the South Bay in Palos Verdes, we acquired a building downtown. We're we're our physical footprint is teeny tiny on this campus. We're 420 acres for 47,000 students and grad and undergrad, and uh, you know however many thousands of faculty and staff. I mean it's a big community, and we're stretching our wings a bit. And we're um, we're we did a five and a half billion dollar campaign that ended in 2019 after seven and a half years and. No, no one expects the next one to be smaller. So right. let's go. Well, hey, yeah. I reach out to Ria. Um, if you can't find her email address, then you don't deserve to connect with her. <laughs> um, and and I have to say, Ria, I hope that, you know, uh, maybe 2024, our paths cross in real life, maybe even Absolutely. at the Leslie Conference Center. Who knows when I'm out in your neck? That would be great. Come stay. There's 254 guest rooms, too. Love it. Love it. We'll, uh, we'll absolutely try to make that happen. And I just want to say thank you to you. Uh, I understand why Julie Hooper, Catherine Van Sickle, Peter Hayashida, Betsy Feeney, Scott Mori, and others have named you as one of uh, their mentors. Uh, thank you for everything that you've done for the profession and for your contributions today. Thank you. This is really fun. Love it. All right. With that, I'm going to close today's episode featuring Rhea Turtletaub, who serves as Vice Chancellor of External Affairs at UCLA. Take care, everybody.